0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Welcome to season eight. I am Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan and welcome back everybody. Yes, season eight. It's so exciting. I can't believe we're here. It's just mad. I love it.
0: And we're approaching our 200th episode as well. So that's uh, on the horizon.
1: Oh yeah, I did promise that I was going to find out which episode it would be and look into that and I haven't. So thank you for the timely reminder.
0: Uh, so yes, we're back after our two-week break. Thank you for bearing with us, and uh, yeah, it's good to have, have you back with us. Before we get on to today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our, all of our patron supporters, especially our newest supporters. And you're going to do that, Betham, for a good laugh, aren't you?
1: Yeah, it is always a good laugh, isn't it? I hope there's no difficult names because you always do that to me. So a huge thank you to Emma Donovan who increased her pledge, and thank you to Hannah. Shauna, oh, sorry, Shauna. (laughs) Owassovich? I'm going to say Owassovich.
0: Sounds wrong.
1: Oh, no. Hannah, Shauna Owassovich, Jade Portlock, Lisa Loder, Amy Sidaway, Melanie Green, Vicky B, Marie Richardson, Gemma Jackson, Karen Thompson, Rachel Hall, Megan Eagles, Jessica Harling, Sean Duffy, Suzanne Risto, Sarah Lee, Sally Barber, Rachel, The Roblox Gamer H, Nikki Hardy. And I think that I get everybody's names reasonably okay. It's just Shauna. Shauna, please yell at me if, it's, if I've said that wrong.
0: Thank you so much for all of your support. If you want to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We've got 39 bonus Patreon episodes over there which is like a season Ooh, what a catchy and a half. Catchy
1: amount. It's a really
0: catchy <laughs> amount, isn't it? Uh, it's like a season and a half of the main show that's exclusive to Patreon as a thank you for supporting us there. And we've also got 12 episodes of our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Crime Wave, where we talk about topical true crime stories making the news. So your support over on Patreon honestly makes a huge difference. If you do want to sign up, there's no minimum term. You can cancel any time, but we, we do massively appreciate it.
1: Yeah, we really do. So thank you, everybody.
0: This week we're covering the shockingly gruesome 2016 murder of an innocent off-duty police officer. The circumstances surrounding the killing were appalling and even the police officers and detectives working the case later commented on the next level brutality that the crime scene alluded to. Amongst all of the sordid, dark and unsettling details of this case, there also lives a sad story of what can happen when the more severely mentally ill members of our society are cast aside and ignored by the powers that be.
1: I think this is going to be so interesting because I'm not sure I know the case, but this sounds like there's not going to be a black and white um, kind of emotion for us to feel hearing this. I feel like it's going to be really multifaceted, is it not?
0: I don't know, it could be, it could be. We'll see how you feel at the end of it.
1: Interesting. It is a
0: multifaceted case, you're right. It's a tale of drug addiction, religious oppression, homophobia and the downfall of a highly intelligent yet profoundly disturbed individual who was essentially abandoned and left to rot. Fair warning, this episode contains detailed descriptions of some truly gruesome acts of violence as well as several sex references. On the 7th of April in 2016, the Metropolitan Police were called to a block of flats on the Peabody Estate in South London to investigate the source of a putrid smell that was emanating from a property within the block. Neighbours had alerted police after they noticed the foul-smelling odour had been getting more intense over the course of several days. Days earlier, the resident caretaker of the block of flats had even installed air fresheners in an attempt to mask this smell. When that didn't work, another of the flat's residents, Steve Harris, had knocked on the door where the smell seemed to be coming from and discreetly lifted the letterbox to try and see if he could see the source of the problem. He saw nothing of interest but said the intense smell that blasted him through the open letterbox was so overwhelming that he nearly threw up on the spot.
1: Oh my God. Can is you imagine that? Horrific. And also, this is like giving you such a sense of foreboding because that is never a good thing if there's a smell that bad.
0: No. And although you're not necessarily going to know what the smell is, I think usually instinctively you know that it's going to be something like rotting flesh. And indeed, this is what uh, Steve Harris described that smell as. My stomach's rumbling. Apologies. So Steve Harris described the smell as that of a large decaying corpse of an animal, as he thought, Mm. and he began to worry that there might be a dead body inside.
1: I think that's a fair worry, isn't it? I understand wanting to phone the police about something like that.
0: Yeah. As Steve Harris attempted to stifle his uncontrollable urge to gag, the door of the flat suddenly swung open and Steve was met by the occupant a semi-naked man in his late 40s who seemed highly agitated and demanded to know why Steve had been looking through his letterbox.
1: God, imagine as well, like the smell comes out and then he opens the door and he's like half-naked.
0: Yeah, it's like, what? Having a
1: go at you. What do you
0: fucking want? Yeah. So Steve explained to the occupant that the strong smell emanating from his flat was causing a lot of issues for the other tenants in the block and appearing anxious, the man apologised and explained that he'd simply been cooking for a friend
1: i'm glad i don't have a friend like that that cooks me if this cooking smells like a rotting corpse oh god yeah that's not oh, not Mark, good. this is horrible already
0: steve walked away from the flat but he knew that something was seriously wrong inside there when the police arrived at the apartment in question later that day they knocked on the door to see if anyone was at home To their surprise, the door opened and they were met by a semi-naked 49-year-old man who identified himself as Juan Stefano Britzi, an Italian unemployed drug addict who had been living in London for several years. Britzi willfully allowed the two police officers to enter his flat and as soon as they stepped inside, they were hit by the overpowering smell of cleaning chemicals mixed with rotting flesh. Further inside the flat, they were soon greeted by an unimaginable, nightmarish scene that wouldn't have looked out of place in a horror movie. The main living area was scattered with open trash bags which contained large chunks of human flesh, a pelvis bone, a severed hand and part of a spinal column. Oh my god, All of that 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 is... is gruesome. But the image in my head of a severed spinal column is just disturbing beyond belief, isn't it?
1: I don't know why, but that's the worst part for me as well. I thought exactly the
0: same, yeah. In the bathtub, the officers found a pool of strong-smelling bluish-green liquid with large globules of human fat floating in it. This later turned out to be hydrofluoric acid which had failed to effectively dissolve the body of the victim as Britzy had been unable to heat the chemicals to the required 300 degrees Celsius. Britzy was arrested on the spot on suspicion of murder. He made no resistance to the arrest and made an immediate confession, openly giving the arresting officers a wealth of evidence. When one of the officers asked Britzy why he had murdered the victim, he nonchalantly told them, I spoke to Satan and he was telling me to kill, kill, kill and I agreed at the first opportunity. When they then asked him about the identity of the victim, Britzy responded, I killed him last week. I met him on Grinder and I killed him. Satan told me to. Now, curiously, Britzy strenuously denied to the officers that he had any mental health issues but he did admit that he'd been smoking a lot of crystal meth that week. Naturally, the police were absolutely horrified by the sheer barbarity of what had occurred in Stefano Britzi's apartment, and of course they had a plethora of questions. Just who was Stefano Britzi? What was the identity of the dead body in the bathtub? And why had this person been killed and disposed of so callously? Fortunately, Britzi was a very cooperative defendant and over the course of several hours of questioning, the sordid yet also somewhat sad details of the life and crimes of Stefano Britzi slowly began to come together. Stefano Britzi was born on the 26th of June in 1966 in San Marcello dei Pistoiese, a tiny commune in the Italian region of Tuscany, which is about 45 kilometers northwest of Florence. Stefano was the youngest of three children. His father was a civil servant and his mother worked in child health care. The Britzi family were all devout Catholics and they duly raised their children to abide by their ultra-strict and deeply conservative Catholic values. Most of the family, including Stefano's two older siblings, were perfectly okay with this. Their uncle was a Catholic priest in a local church and the family would regularly visit to attend services and to make confessions. They mostly shared the same devout religious beliefs and lived their lives accordingly. However, as time went on and the children began to approach adulthood, it soon became clear that Stefano was wrestling with a painful personal truth. At around the age of 15, Stefano realised that he was gay. Try as he might, he found this too difficult to reconcile with his family's strict Catholic beliefs. His problems went far beyond his family values, however. San Marcello de Pistois was your typical small town with small town people that all shared one another's Catholic values.
1: That must be so difficult for him, kind of growing up and then hitting his teenage years and having to kind of deal with this and pretty much on his own as well.
0: Yeah, there's no way he could have confided in anyone. So as I said, yeah, it was a small town with small town mentalities. And consequently, the inhabitants held tragically narrow minded views and rampantly homophobic mindsets. And as one childhood friend of Stefano's would later go on to describe to Italian media, this kind of um, sums this up. Quote, 30 years ago, it was not easy to live freely without being judged for homosexuality. I remember Stefano was a very sensitive boy who could not find peace within himself. He was tormented. Stefano was forced to endure the unimaginable torment that was his childhood and to suppress who he really was, but the trauma took a major toll on his mental health. By the time he reached his late teenage years, he found himself desperate to distance himself from his family and to get well away from San Marcello de Pistois. He yearned to run away and to be free, free to live his own life, free of shame and on his own terms. Somewhat unsurprisingly, as soon as Stefano was old enough, he did exactly that. He left his family behind and moved to attend college in the nearest big Italian city, which was Florence, where he studied software engineering. He soon made friends and began dating other men, and he tried to build a normal life for himself after many years of oppression and trauma.
1: That must have been such an incredibly freeing kind of opportunity for him and an experience.
0: It it really was. And I I think we'll come on to when Stefano moved to London from Florence, which is even more eye-opening for him. And it it was a huge uh, freedom from the life that he'd grown up in, but it was almost too much freedom. and, And that really had consequences for him. After graduation, Stefano remained in Florence and took a job as a computer programmer, which he remained in for more than 20 years. His friends and workmates in Florence would later describe him as being funny and highly intelligent, with a somewhat flamboyant and dramatic character. They said he also had a sensitive side. It is said that during his time in Florence, Stefano lived extremely promiscuously and adopted a very carefree and risky lifestyle, frequenting gay bars, bathhouses and cruising spots, always on the lookout for sexual encounters. In 2008, the consequences caught up with him. After suddenly becoming very sick, Stefano checked himself into a hospital and was diagnosed with HIV and hepatitis C. And I just want to sort of um, issue a bit of a caveat to that. I'm not saying that he got HIV and hepatitis C purely down to being promiscuous. You don't have to lead a promiscuous lifestyle to get HIV and hepatitis C. But for him, it was a result of that lifestyle that he was leading. You can, lead a, you can lead any lifestyle you want to, and you can lead that lifestyle and take precautions and, and not open yourself up to those risks. But unfortunately, Stefano did open himself up to those risks.
1: God, you can have a one-night stand and open yourself up to that Absolutely. risk It's like a one-off. Yeah. And you've never done anything else. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Stefano was understood to be completely devastated by his diagnosis and described it to friends as a death sentence. But of course, we now know that that's no longer the case with HIV. So Stefano was put on a course of modern medication which kept his symptoms in check and the virus very much under control and he was able to live a relatively normal and healthy lifestyle and for a time he did try to clean up his act a little bit and live more responsibly. In 2012 Stefano was given the opportunity to move to London to become a senior web developer with a major investment bank and this would bring with it a £75,000 annual salary. Stefano, who was at the time becoming frustrated with the lack of career prospects for software engineers in Florence, eagerly jumped at the chance, and within weeks he was on a one-way flight bound for the UK. Life in the UK was, for Stefano, a far cry from the life he'd led in Italy, as I said earlier. It was much more liberal, and it's a more atheist country compared to Italy, and the UK offered Stefano what he had always dreamt of, absolute freedom. Freedom to be himself, to be openly gay and not to be so heavily persecuted for that, and the freedom to live on his own terms, independent of any religious dogma or social oppression. Almost as soon as Stefano had settled into his new life in London, he relapsed back into his old, wild and promiscuous ways. This time, however, he began taking things to brand new extremes. Before we get to that, let's hear from the second and final sponsor of today's show. Not long after moving to London, Stefano began experimenting with recreational drugs such as GHB and ketamine, which eventually led to him becoming severely addicted to crystal meth. Users of crystal meth often find themselves with almost uncomfortable levels of energy which make it impossible to sleep or sometimes to even sit still. They just become really agitated and they also find that their libido skyrocket giving them an insatiable desire for sex. So when you put these two things together I can kind of understand why it is quite widely used in some Uh, areas of the population and, and sometimes that is within the gay community as well
1: and I also think that does go hand in hand doesn't it you can't sleep you can't sit still and you've got a high libido it's probably the right sort of time of night for someone else who's high and having a good time and wants to get laid as well so yeah like you're gonna then meet the the right person in the right elements because potentially you're both having these effects on you
0: yeah but we're not we're so not endorsing the use of crystal meth (laughs) I am not endorsing it
1: I'm just saying I can understand no I get it I get it listeners please I'm not saying I'm not saying do it
0: no god no I think it's just
1: saying I can understand that potentially that's why it's used
0: it's got But don't do it (laughs) it's got to be one of the worst drugs from what I know I think it's sort of definitely up there with crack cocaine and it's possibly even worse than that So addictive, yeah. So it's it's understood that Stefano's drug addiction very quickly spiralled out of control and it consumed every area of his life. And he stopped taking his HIV medication, he became paranoid and neurotic, and he took on a dishevelled and haggard appearance, neglecting his personal hygiene, and also he began behaving in erratic and unpredictable ways.
1: Oh, that's really tragic. That's really horrible.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really consumed him. Uh, It would, because it's so addictive. He also, seemingly out of the blue, became fascinated by Satanism and began reading the Satanic Bible and scribbling down obscure and often disturbing handwritten notes addressed to the devil.
1: I kind of understand that a little though, because his whole life up to his teen years was very, very religion focused. Yeah, it does make so sense. This is him going the opposite, the
0: opposite end of the spectrum to sort it of balance. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, I can again, yeah. I can understand why. So one such entry read, the problem with that is the psychologist says crystal meth caused psychosis. I was raised Catholic, being gay was evil, and the devil, so I've been into Satan. So it doesn't make an awful lot of sense, but you can kind of see he's kind of going back to his roots and that Catholic upbringing where being gay was seen as evil. And yeah, he's trying to reconcile still. And yeah, that's why he's going to that other end of the spectrum. It was becoming increasingly clear that Stefano's dependence on crystal meth had caused a deep and irreparable level of psychological damage. His condition worsened rapidly and in 2015 he was fired from his position at the investment bank after working there for only three years and I actually think he did quite well to hang on to that job for as long as he did. The loss of his job was a huge blow for Stefano. His addiction was beginning to destroy his life from the inside out and he felt powerless to stop it. He was consumed with sadness. His outgoing and flamboyant character gave way to a deep and dark depression. Stefano became lonesome, reclusive and nocturnal. He kept his curtains closed, didn't speak to anyone and rarely left his flat during the day. His daytime hours were largely consumed with sleeping, doing drugs and binge watching American TV shows and he was said to be particularly fond of the show Breaking Bad.
1: That's interesting because that kind of gives you a bit of a a warning against doing things and is a bit more of a cautionary tale. So it's interesting, isn't it, that he'd be drawn to it.
0: And possibly where he got the idea of the bath full of acid to dispose of his victim from, because I know they do that in, in that show. Yeah. The following year in 2016, Stefano joined Crystal Meth Anonymous and sought private therapy too. He tried very hard to attend every single session that was offered to him and he reportedly engaged well with each and every session. There was never any doubt that Stefano took his therapy very seriously or that he genuinely wanted to get better and to put his life back together. But he later told police that none of these interventions helped him even slightly. He was just so far gone into this descent of addiction. He also confided in some of his friends that he felt unable to escape the never-ending sense of guilt that was rooted in his childhood and his sexuality, which remained fiercely at odds with his devout Catholic upbringing. Despite doing all he could to escape his family's religious oppression, Stefano still felt like an abomination, despised by God and bound for an eternity in hell. Isn't that just awful?
1: That is so sad.
0: It was these powerful emotions which moved him closer to his fixation with Satanism, a belief which seemed to welcome and accept him for exactly who he was. One especially sad part of this story is that there is well documented evidence that Stefano wanted nothing more than to clean up and to get better. He was only too aware of how much damage was being done to his physical and mental health at the hands of this dreadful meth addiction. At one point, true to his dramatic and flamboyant nature, Stefano literally built a small wooden coffin for his addiction. He even held a Catholic-style funeral service for it and buried it in a small grave which he then marked with a small tombstone. After this funeral, he proudly declared that his addiction was dead and that he was ready to move on with his life.
1: Oh my gosh, you'd like to hope that that would really help to have that really visible and symbolic... You know, showing of of what I want to do, and
0: yeah, I'd th- th- love
1: I, to think that that would really help.
0: I thought it was a great idea, and although Stefano was really intelligent, I think his mind would have been hampered by the drugs, and that to me sounds like something a very good drugs counselor would have suggested to him. So I, I don't know that for sure, but I would say that's something that was put to him as a great idea, and I, I love that he carried through with it, but very sadly, it just didn't work nothing worked for Stefano. The power of his addiction was just too strong. Stefano relapsed almost immediately after that funeral service, and his downward spiral continued. Eventually, and quite sadly really, he just simply lost hope. He stopped going to any of the sessions, any of the Crystal Meth Anonymous sessions, any of the sessions with his private therapist, and he just continued consuming drugs, and he continued living recklessly. And like so many other cases of mental illness, he was abandoned and left to just get on with it. And, you know, he did engage with support and he did then disengage with it. But I I don't know what more could have been done, but I just think something needed to be done. Maybe he could have been sectioned. I I just don't know. As is often the case, this attitude of indifference that we see so often when it comes to professional help for the mentally ill would go on to have tragic and appalling consequences in this case. With nobody coming to save him and his debilitating addiction to crystal meth now stronger than ever, Stefano began to literally fall apart. His body and mind began to fail him and he descended into deep, dark insanity. He became irrational, impulsive, paranoid, outwardly aggressive and unable to make basic distinctions between fantasy and reality. He threw himself headlong into a sordid world of sex and drugs and showed little to no regard for his HIV status or the health and well-being of his sexual partners. In other words, he was becoming dangerous now because he wasn't taking his HIV medication at this point. In the weeks and months leading up to his arrest, Stefano Britzi had been hitting the crystal meth hard and his promiscuity and debauchery were getting quickly out of hand. He was a very heavy user on Grindr, the gay dating and hookup app that has earned both fame as well as notoriety for its effectiveness, but also for its inherent dangers. For example, barely a year earlier in 2014, UK serial killer Stephen Port used Grindr to entice four of his young victims to his flat where they were then drugged, incapacitated, raped and murdered. He was sentenced to a whole life order in 2015. Not saying grinder is, you know, completely dangerous, but it's not just grinder, any uh, hookup apps, Tinder, match, whatever. Um, they carry a risk because ultimately you're potentially meeting someone who is a stranger, aren't you?
1: And someone who's potentially dangerous. You think yeah. of Grace Millane, for example, whose Absolutely. case we also covered. Um I guess as like anything in life, everything comes with its risks. It's just probably quite bad for grinders' reputation that such huge things have happened yeah where grind has been in the center
0: yeah in this country in both in london and both um you know within a relatively short period of time so yeah it. um yeah i can understand the impact it had and um we covered obviously we covered the case of stephen port on an earlier episode of seeing red Stefano also began cruising for encounters on the gay fetish app Recon, and exactly one week before his arrest, he had used the app to advertise a chemsex party at his apartment, which was due to take place on the 1st of April. So for any sheltered people, I refuse to believe there are any amongst our listeners, uh, but if you didn't know, a chemsex party basically does what it says on the tin. So it's a multi-person, drug-fuelled sex orgy. Um, Sounds appalling.
1: Especially when you described how um kind of consumed by drugs he is at this point and how he's, like, not clean. He's, like, disheveled. Yeah. He's also, like, losing the ability to tell the difference between reality and fiction. That's quite an unattractive sexual partner, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I know. I can't say
1: it for everyone, but for me, that does not sound like who you really want to be going to a sex party with.
0: No, I think it's a a wholly unattractive proposition in in this Mm. instance, because...
1: You wouldn't realise until you saw him, obviously, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think if you think about his apartment, his flat, it would have been in a chaotic state as well. Um, But he was in a chaotic state. So if you'd have turned up for that party, you'd likely have been greeted by someone who was quite manic and uh yeah, very dishevelled and smelly and unkempt. Yeah, it would have been pretty disastrous, I think. So April the 1st came around and the first person to attend the apartment was a 59-year-old off-duty police officer, PC Gordon Semple. Originally from Inverness in Scotland, Gordon Semple began his professional life working his way through the ranks in a high street bank in Scotland. However, he soon grew disillusioned with his career in finance and decided to change things up a bit. He moved to London and joined the Met Police Force and quickly discovered his passion and enthusiasm for police work. On the day that he arrived at Britz's apartment, he was living in Kent and had been a well-respected officer in the Metropolitan Police for more than 30 years. P.C. Semple was openly gay and had been in an open relationship for over 25 years. He had a big family and many friends and he was very well-loved by all who knew him. He was described as funny, kind-natured, generous and dedicated to his work in the police force. So earlier that day, on the 1st of April, while still actively on police duty, PC Semple had contacted Stefano and Grinder. The two men were strangers to one another and had never met prior. They chatted for a while before Stefano had told PC Semple that he was having this chemsex party later that night and he invited PC Semple to go over and get involved. Gordon Semple accepted the invitation and immediately after his shift that evening headed over to the party a few hours earlier than it was expected to start. He and Stefano engaged in casual sex which according to Britzy involved some BDSM bondage play and afterwards the two men had gotten onto their grinder apps to invite more men to this chemsex event later that night. The second man to show up for this party, who understandably has opted to remain anonymous, struggled to find the right address at first, but eventually found Stefano's front door and rang the buzzer to be let in, but the door didn't unlock as he expected. Over the intercom, a worried and distressed sounding Stefano said, Hello, sorry we are having some kind of situation here. The second guest was confused and didn't know what Stefano meant, so he asked what was going on. At this time, Stefano snapped back that someone had fallen ill and that the party was cancelled. The disappointed man then walked away, assuming that the whole thing had just been some silly online April Fool's joke. Bit of a a weird joke, but yeah, like what's happened there?
1: But equally, I bet like now he just thinks like, I'm so glad that I couldn't find the right address for ages or something.
0: Yeah, he absolutely narrowly avoided becoming a murder victim himself that night. As Britzy later explained to police, he'd invited a few men to join his party, but there wasn't much interest and most of the men didn't arrive that night. It's understood that Stefano, who was heavily under the influence of crystal meth at this time, took these strangers' rejections personally and became enraged that his planned chemsex party was not going to go ahead. And at some point, he took his frustrations out on PC Semple and an argument ensued between the pair. And at this point, Britzy completely lost control and violently attacked him. And what this anonymous man, this second caller to the flat that night, didn't know when he pressed the buzzer, was that at that very moment, Stefano was right in the middle of strangling Gordon Semple to death.
1: Oh my God, so that's why, you know, he's not answering. Because, jeez, that is horrific.
0: Yeah, so he'd stopped to answer the door uh, to get rid of this person.
1: A bit of a situation. Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: It is entirely possible that Stefano was in the midst of a drug-induced psychotic episode when the murder was carried out. Stefano likely knew full well that PC Semple was a serving police officer, but his drug-induced psychosis and general insanity clouded any sense of judgment. And indeed, there is no doubt that his mental state was at an all-time low during that period of his life. And that's, of course, not an excuse at all. But it does go on to explain some of the actions here. After the murder, Stefano spent the next four days in a depressed, drug-induced stupor slumped lazily next to the decaying body of PC Semple.
1: Oh my god.
0: Isn't that just vile to think of? It's horrible. And this is April the 1st, so I don't know what. Sometimes at uh, that time of year, we can have pretty decent weather in this country. Uh, you can get a bit of a mini heatwave, so I don't know if that that was the case, but it could be that the weather was quite warm, and that of course would have sped up the decaying process, so you can understand how this smell has really started to emanate from Stefano's flat. By now, PC Gordon Semple had been reported missing by his partner, and his colleagues in the Met Police were trying to track him down, and I really felt for his partner at this time, because he has been advised that his partner has just, you know, gone missing, he's not turned up, and he's gravely worried for him.
1: And it's really tough, isn't it? Because we have talked before about how an adult is allowed to go missing and is allowed to disappear if you want to. You kind of need to have more evidence that something's gone wrong. However, I guess at least with him being a serving police officer, his colleagues... Potentially, are going to be able to know him in more detail and know that this is out of character and that sort of thing. So maybe they're able to look at things quicker. Hopefully, I,
0: I think so. I, I like to think that they would have been able to just get on this a bit more quickly because they knew this person probably inside out to some extent. Mm. CCTV caught PC Semple getting off the train at Blackfriars Station, which wasn't far from Britz's address. But once he'd left that station, his trail was lost. By day five, the body began to emit a sickening, unbearable smell. And of course, this was enough to then prompt Stefano to go out of the house and to try to take care of this problem.
1: I think, because I've just looked ahead, that we should possibly just give a little warning to our listeners that they may want to skip like two minutes if they're particularly sensitive to certain things, because this, I've just looked ahead and I'm like, oh. Yeah. I just, I can't cope with what he what happens next oh my god or just at least be prepared (laughs) yeah
0: be prepared so stefano's first solution according to his statements made to police during questioning was to eat the body stefano told police that he had used a cheese grater to carve slithers of flesh from pc sample which he then cooked and tried to eat out of a bowl with chopsticks and, and this claim actually turned out to be horrifyingly true, because forensic investigators discovered large amounts of PC Semple's DNA inside the oven, on utensils inside a cutlery drawer, on a chopping board, and also inside a cooking pot. Additionally, when a section of PC Semple's torso was recovered from a trash bag and examined, the lead pathologist discovered what appeared to be bite marks on one of PC Semple's ribs. For reasons unknown Stefano soon gave up on the idea of eating his victim and instead decided to try to dispose of the body somehow. Now of course being a fan of the American TV show Breaking Bad he decided to try to obtain some hydrofluoric acid and to dissolve the body piece by piece in his bathtub. On Tuesday, April 5th, investigators viewed CCTV footage of Stefano making the very short walk down the street to a nearby decorator's merchants on Southwark Street. CCTV footage from inside the store shows Stefano buying three saws, several metal sheets, plastic buckets, as well as industrial-sized bottles of acid and cleaning products. Now, perhaps the most chilling part of all of this was when the footage clearly showed Stefano measuring one of the buckets by placing it over his own head, which was apparently to make sure that it was big enough to hold a human head or maybe to hold a human torso. It's just chilling.
1: That's horrible.
0: Isn't it? What Stefano clearly didn't know is that it is in fact incredibly difficult to completely reduce a human corpse to nothing using acid alone. Hollywood would have you believe it's easy, quick and straightforward, but it's actually a highly complicated process that even the most experienced chemical scientists would struggle with in a kind of domestic environment.
1: Yeah, and he's gone for like hydrofluoric rather than hydrochloric acid, which I feel like if you've watched some things, even I mean, even hydrochloric acid is going to be different, but that's stronger. Like if you've just watched don't TV know, and yeah. stuff, hydrofluoric acid is so much weaker because it's used more in a lot more things so it, yeah he's not going to just be able to just pop it in a bath and then be done with it and
0: what about the bath wouldn't it decay the bathtub or eat away at the whatever the bath's made of um I, I just don't know but you're right it depends
1: on what the bath's made of yeah exactly i suppose
0: but he he certainly
1: that was the issue in breaking bad they didn't use a plastic bucket they used a metal bathtub and it yeah because the metal of the bath was uh, was eaten away by the acid so he didn't learn from Breaking Bad that he watched so keenly, but he was probably, apparently. he was
0: probably off his face on crystal meth and not paying close True. enough attention or couldn't recall it. Um, but mm. y- you are right. Realistically, you would need a much stronger grade of acid than the stuff that can be legally purchased over the counter. So I don't know what kind of acid, but, you know, the really strong stuff. And even then, the dissolving process takes an infuriatingly long time. And you also need to heat the liquid to above 300 degrees Celsius to get the full desired effect, which is just like ridiculously difficult to do without Mm. a source of extreme heat. And you just cannot do that in a block of flats. It's so dangerous. So he was on a hide into nowhere, really. Um, so yeah to make matters worse the acid doesn't prevent the decaying process and the job can become like really disgusting and very problematic very quickly. So needless to say Stefano Britzi had failed spectacularly at cleaning up after himself and was promptly charged with the murder of PC Gordon Semple. The case went to trial that year in October however despite his full cooperation and detailed confessions to the murder during the initial investigation and the questioning, Stefano shocked everybody when he pleaded not guilty, claiming instead that PC Semple's death had been the accidental outcome of a BDC, a BDCSM, a BDSM <laughs> sex game gone horribly wrong. I'm sorry to laugh, but I, they're not initials that I say out loud very often, only on Saturdays. Stefani's defense made the argument that pc sembler <laughs> i
1: shouldn't even be laughing i know it's i feel not not terrible funny, but... for
0: for making any kind of jokes in this certainly no
1: it's not i'm laughing at you anyway exactly. It just made me chuckle the way you couldn't even say some letters
0: bbcsm i wonder what that would stand for uh i don't know all i can think maybe
1: you could just put the chem chem sex in there maybe that's what you've done maybe you've just done that all i
0: could think of was the c word which i can't say
1: Jesus Christ! I'm not saying Mark.
0: <laughs> Why would I immediately come to that word? Oh, That's vile, me. and a word that I actually okay, actually said in our most recent bonus episode because he somebody did. else said it. I didn't believe yeah, it out. Let's
1: just take a pause, Mark. Okay, and just go back to the case. <laughs>
0: okay, so um, Stefano only pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of obstructing a coroner by attempting to destroy a body. Uh, so he's saying that this murder or this death was an accident. Many involved in the case, such as the lead detectives and the case prosecutors, saw the unexpected plea change as nothing more than a last-minute fuck-it play by Stefano and decided not to change their approach to the case. After all, the evidence of brutal and premeditated killing was undeniably compelling. And they were right. The evidence against Stefano was so overwhelming that he never stood a chance of getting off lightly. During the proceedings, the CCTV footage from inside the merchant store was shown in court, which prompted the case prosecutor to ask Stefano if he'd been inspired by the Breaking Bad episode where Walt and Jesse attempt to dissolve a body in hydrofluoric acid. And Stefano responded at this point, I accept I considered without any rationality at all if I had thought about it, if I was some kind of criminal mind, I would have done things in a much more organised way. I think I was inspired by the idea. I took whatever there was, thinking maybe I can dissolve him. So he's kind of saying this was not premeditated, this was just panic, that this guy has died during a sex game gone wrong, and I am going to be blamed for his death, so I now need to dispose of the body. Just a few weeks later, on November the 13th in 2016, Stefano Britzzi was found guilty and convicted of both crimes, so the murder and disposing of the body as well, or at least attempting to. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 24 years and sent to do his time at HMP Belmarsh, which is a fucking horrible prison that houses terrorists and all sorts. However, just two months into this sentence, on February the 5th in 2017, Stefano Britzi hung himself in his cell. By the time he was discovered by prison staff, he was already dead. An inquest was held into his suicide which ultimately placed no blame towards any of the prison staff involved in his care. And the report concluded that Stefano was an atypical prisoner with a high intellect who was frustrated by the limitations of prison life. And I kind of get that. If you are really intelligent, someone like Gillian Maxwell, those people really, really struggle with being incarcerated much more than anybody else um, that is not of the same intellect because they just naturally, the way their brain works, they find it harder to adapt. So I don't think we, we'd have any problem adapting, would we, Beth? No, we didn't have no IQs, yeah. (laughs) Stefano's suicide caused the family of PC Gordon Semple considerable emotional turmoil, as I'm sure you can understand. Speaking to the media shortly after Stefano's death, the brother of PC Gordon Semple, Ronnie, said, I don't know how to feel, to be honest, whether to be happy or sad that he didn't spend 24 years in isolation. What I would say is that if it was 30 years ago, he would have hanged for this justice works in peculiar ways and i thought that was just so poetic that he's his right you know maybe 40 years ago but um but yeah he would have been hanged for that and he was hanged for it ultimately
1: and it's really tough because yes you'd absolutely hate the person that did that to your brother but as a decent person you're still not going to wish for something on somebody so interesting how he says I don't know how to feel
0: and also what's better in terms of your sense of justice for your brother mm-hmm. is it to know somebody is in prison in HMP Belmarsh for 24 years living out their days with the threat of violence and intimidation and their complete lack and of liberty, tormented
1: there, mm-hmm. and tormented
0: by what they've done potentially or is it better to know that that person's dead? I don't yeah. know. Who knows? That's going to be different for everybody that's um, a relative or a loved one of a victim of a heinous crime like this. Shortly after Stefano Briggs' conviction, serial killer Stephen Port was given a whole life sentence for raping and murdering men that he'd met on Grindr. And as we kind of said earlier, the proximity of the two cases prompted the media to start pushing the narrative that dating apps such as Grindr and Tinder were dangerous. However, in response to these claims, a spokesman for London Friend, a health and well-being charity for London's LGBTQ plus community, told The Guardian, what role the apps have been playing to facilitate that is that it's just been the medium through which he's met them and the intention's been there. He hasn't done it because of the apps. The apps haven't made him do that. So I, I totally get that. So we've got to be careful when we blame these apps. They're not turning people into killers, serial killers and rapists. They are the conduit through which people like that are able to procure victims. If those apps didn't exist, they would be put in bloody lonely hearts ads in a fucking local rag like people would have done 30 years ago
1: exactly they would be finding a different way to get the end goal that they're working towards i don't know how to put that in a non like you know like Mm. quite a work related way but they would find a different way the apps aren't the issue no
0: absolutely not i do agree but but that said yeah we all know that you've got to be careful Addressing the issue of crystal meth in the Britsy case, London Friends strongly urge members of the LGBTQ plus community to vehemently turn away from the drug or from chemsex parties of any kind, adding, A case like this is a rare and extreme example, but the impact of crystal meth on the mental health of our service users is not. We strongly advise anyone who experiences any difficulty through using it or other drugs or alcohol to seek support as early as possible. So if anybody is listening to this and struggling with uh, drug use, particularly of crystal meth, um, and they are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, then London Friend, I don't know anything about them really, but they sound like a, a great resource to turn to. And I'm sure there's other resources out there. So don't um, feel you have to suffer on your own. Do seek help. That's my PSA. And I thought it
1: was very interesting as well to see that there's the um Crystal Meth Anonymous because I've only ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous and it makes sense that there would be anonymouses of other addictions and it's great to know that great to know that you could have that support should you need it, or if any of our listeners have a family or friend who they want to help and want to sort of help with some support potentially those are places they could start as well, this London Friend charity or something along those lines.
0: Yeah. So without, yeah, turning it into a full PSA, I just sometimes think it's really important to signpost some of these things because we're talking about issues that could affect some of our listeners or people that they know. Um, but yeah, it's um that that's the end of, of the episode today. Uh, let us know what, what you think about this case. I think it is multifaceted. We know that Stefano Brizzi was absolutely horrific in terms of what he did, but how much of a part did the drugs play in that and his upbringing, or was it always in him? Was there always a killer within him? Uh, would that always have got out, whether it was through you know a psychotic drug-induced episode or or otherwise? Do let us know.
1: What a horrific way to start season eight. That is a horrendous, horrendous case.
0: Yeah. Well, we were going to start with Gary Glitter, weren't we? Uh, so it would have been Well,
1: he's next week, so it's going to get anyway. worse, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I've literally had to take a break from my research and writing that episode because it's so horrendous. So that's going to be fun for you all next week.
0: Okay, doke Well, we'll be back next week with Gary Glitter, won't we, Beth?
1: Yep. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week. week.
0: Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.